Well, as I've said a couple times, we're going to finish up a series on leadership in the church. We've looked at what kind of people need to be the ones that we select for leaders and, and who can lead. We've looked at what exactly is the primary focus of an elder and why do we have deacons? Why should we have deacons at times? But what does that look like in life? What does that look like in reality? And how should we behave and how should we respond to those leaders that we select and we appoint and we put in positions of responsibility and service? We have not, and we're not going to exhaust everything the New Testament says about leadership, but, but a good place to go to in finding out how should we live this out, because remember, 1 Timothy and Titus are more about qualifications. What kind of, what does a person need to have? What kind of a person should they be? And what kind of character traits do they need to have? And, and from that, we've been able to extrapolate, well, this is what this role looks like. But how does it look in our lives. And, and if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter uh, gives a good picture of what the interaction of the church together should be. And uh, we see it often in Scripture, not so much of committee meetings or this strategic plan or that strategic plan. But throughout his book, his letter, Peter is talking about, and he's, he's talking to a church that is, has experienced and is experiencing and is going to experience suffering. And, and they're going through trials. And he's talking to them about how they relate to one another and how they relate to their world and the life that they are going through. And he's keeping their eyes focused on the fact that, that there is a greater purpose that if they suffer today, there's, there's glory tomorrow. And he says in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 1, and we're only going to look at the first five verses here, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. So he's, he's talking about, he he's encourages the elders that, as a fellow elder, somebody who who's, has a position of leadership and oversight in the church, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, not that he was there when Jesus was being uh, whipped, not that he was there at the cross, we know he ran, but he was a witness. He knew it happened. He saw Jesus taken prisoner. He was a witness of not just that, but the sufferings of Jesus in his ministry, in his life. The experiences he had, he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He's, he can testify Jesus died. He can testify Jesus rose again. But not only that, but also a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. So he's looking at the past, but he's also looking to the future. A partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. As this person, as somebody in this position, he exhorts them to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Not, not under compulsion. And this is, this, is, this is interesting what he says here, to, to shepherd the flock of God among you, those that are with you, the flock, not under compulsion, 
Not, not because, and, and this word uh, compulsion means by force or that somebody would do something unwillingly or because of necessity. Don't do it just because it's there to be done. Don't do it just because somebody else expects you to or you expect yourself to do it. Not, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, willingly. Uh, according to this word voluntarily means to, to do a, according to of one's own accord, by one's own will. So, so not because anybody's forcing you to, but because you really want to do it according to the will of God. Now, now this is an interesting thing that he says, because if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verses 16 and 17, Paul is talking about his ministry, and, and he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He's, the same word, compulsion, where, where Peter said, don't, don't be an elder under compulsion, not under compulsion, Paul says, I have, to, I, am, I have compulsion. I am under compulsion. I have to preach the gospel. And then he says in verse 17, he says, for if I do this voluntarily, the same word Peter used, voluntarily, if I do this voluntarily, I have reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. So on the one hand, you got Peter saying, don't do it under compulsion. Do it voluntarily. Do it willingly. And then you got Paul saying, you know, and, 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 and now Paul's not saying this is an example for anybody else. He's just saying this is my life. He says, I preach the gospel under compulsion. Not willingly. Not voluntarily. Not according to my own will do I preach the gospel. But I am under a compulsion. So, so how is it that you got Paul saying, I preach under compulsion. If I did it voluntarily, I would have a reward. But because I'm doing it in this way, not voluntarily, not by my own will, therefore I have been given a stewardship entrusted to me. So this is not what I chose, it's what God chose. And then you got Peter saying, don't do it if somebody else is forcing you to do it. Don't do it if, if, if you're just doing it because you feel like you have to do it. Do it because you willingly want to do it. How do we reconcile what looks to be contradictory statements? Well, Paul is not saying that he doesn't want to preach. What he's saying is, is it's not something he's decided to do on his own. He found himself in this position. He, he didn't go out looking to... I mean, he was, you remember he was, he was uh, persecuting the church... God came to him, blinded him, convicted him. He was sitting around blind. And Ananias came and prayed for him, and the scales fell away from his eyes. And he did what is natural for those who have come to know Jesus. They told other people, this is what happened to me. This is what I've experienced. This, this is where I was wrong earlier. This is, Jesus came into my life, and this is, this is what I understand now. This was wrong. This is right. But he didn't just start saying, I'm an apostle, I'm going to start going around and start telling everybody everything. It was years and years, and it took Barnabas bringing him into Antioch and saying, come and minister with me. And then God called them out and said, separate Barnabas and, and Saul for me, remember? 
And it was only as they're on the missionary journey that Paul takes on the leadership role and starts preaching and proclaiming and becoming the primary spokesperson. But all the way before God told Ananias, he is my chosen instrument. He is my chosen instrument. I'm going to send him to the Gentiles. So that's what Paul's talking about. He said, I didn't do this on my own. I'm under compulsion. But here's the thing. If God has called you to do something, you can feel that compulsion and you can willingly do it. And I think that's the the key to to understand what Peter says with what Paul is saying. Peter isn't saying that you can't have some compulsion. It's just what is the source of the compulsion? Are, Are you doing it because you feel like you have to? Are you doing it because you feel like this person is expecting you or that person is expecting you? Or, most likely, do you do it because you feel God calling you to do it? And this isn't just about elders or preachers. This is for all of us. How do you serve? How do you choose where to serve? If you're serving somewhere because somebody else expects you to or somebody else has told you to and you're not really feeling it, you shouldn't be serving there. People can be doing very good things. And they can say, you should come on and join us. And and you can say, wow, that is a worthwhile, good thing to do. But I don't feel any inner prompting that I should be doing that. Now, that could be sin, but generally the Holy Spirit's stronger and louder than sin. So if your, your sin is saying, I don't want to do that, uh, that's, that would force me to get up way too early on a Saturday morning. That's my morning, God. You don't get to have that. I'll give you Sunday, God. Saturday's mine. And then the Holy Spirit says, no, that's really what you need to be doing. That's different then. But sometimes you think, you know, that's a godly thing. That's a good thing. I would love to be doing that, but mm, I don't feel like God's telling me I should be doing that. Peter is telling them that, that they should not do it under compulsion, that, that this good thing can turn into a bad thing if we're doing it because we feel forced to or that we have to do it because of necessity, but instead we should do it because we willingly want to. And, and the way we find that is what does God call us to? I think that, that when you follow God, His will becomes your will. And as He wills, we will. And so if He com- gives us compulsion to do something, we will in turn willingly desire to do it. And so whatever you do, whether it's a, a serving in leadership or a, 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 in, a, as a teacher or in some other ministry, we serve willingly as God leads. Not just because so-and-so expects me to. Not just because I think that's what I should be doing. But because that's what God's actually calling us to do. Because we feel, yes, this is a way I can serve him and I can serve the body around me. And when you look at it that way, there's no contradiction between Paul and Peter. Because what Paul's saying is, is, look, I'm not up here preaching and I'm not traveling around and telling everybody the gospel just because I want to do it. This isn't a choice I made. And sometimes that's what happens. And in fact, you get false teachers a lot of times. God God doesn't false teachers to teach. Now, he might use them, and he might discipline people, and he might even, you know, uh, allow us to go down a way through them. But Holy Spirit-led is not false teaching. False teachers, generally, they want it for themselves. 
They want it. And that's what Peter's saying. Don't do it for that reason. But, but willingly. Be willing to serve. And notice he says, according to the will of God. Now, the will of, in my Bible, is added in for language, but according to God. But because of the willingly word right before that, we understand he's saying, according to God's desires, according to God's will. And so, so however we serve, hopefully, and, and, it, and it can be so tempting, can it? You know? Oh, I really need to have somebody fill this role. And so I go and find a warm body. Who wants to be a warm body filling a role? That's not, that's not inspiring, is it? Sometimes we do just need a warm body, and sometimes we get to be the warm body. And I've been the warm body, and you've been the warm body. But you know what? There was joy in it because you were doing it for the service. It wasn't like, oh, only I can do this. No, somebody just needs to do this, and I, I'm able to step up. But overwhelmingly, the focus should be on, is this something God's leading me to do? Is this something that I feel like I want to do in God? That's the purpose, to serve willingly as we see God's leading, not just because somebody's asking us to, not just because we expect to. Well, it's my turn. That should, that's not good enough reason. And he tells them here in verse 2, what are they supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be shepherding the flock of God. And I love this, this picture. When we think about being a shepherd, uh, you know, to shepherd means to, to tend or to herd, and that's, what, that's where he's getting at because it means to govern. Have you ever considered the fact that a shepherd exists for the sheep? The sheep do not exist for the shepherd. Now, I recognize that shepherd, you know, shepherds use the sheep. We get the wool from them. We get meat from them. But you didn't have some guy wandering around in a meadow and a bunch of sheep saw him and said, hey, you know what? We should go over there and walk around with him, give him something to do. The sheep didn't do that. Instead, you had the sheep, and the sheep were wandering, and without a shepherd, they go anywhere, and they're, they're prey to all sorts of animals. And so even before humans were eating meat, one of the first two men after Adam and Eve, he's a shepherd. He's tending sheep. Sheep seem to not be able to do without us. The shepherd exists for the sheep. The shepherd is the one who goes out to where the sheep are and protects them and guides them and leads them around. The shepherd exists for the sheep. Yeah, the shepherd gets benefit from the sheep. Wool, meat, they live off the sheep, I understand. But the sheep didn't say, hey, let's go walk around with that guy. He went out to them. And the same is true in our, our lives. Uh, we as a people come together and then what do you have? You need to have the leaders to guide. You don't have leaders to guide and they're just looking around for people to follow them. No, it, it comes out of the people. And same thing with nations and states. We do not exist for the benefit of the government. The government exists for the benefit of us. Just like the Sabbath. The Sabbath was invented for man. Man was not invented for Sabbath. The Sabbath serves us. We do not serve it. Same is true. And so the same is true in a church setting. Any leaders, any elders in a church, they exist 
for the benefit of the church, the people. They serve the people. The people do not serve them. The people do not exist for their benefit. Now, pastors can receive benefit from them, much like a shepherd receives from the sheep. But the people do not exist to serve the shepherd. The shepherd exists to serve the people, the flock. And so he's telling them that this is what they need to be. They need to shepherd the flock of God among you. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain. There is that word again. That phrase. We saw it in 1 Timothy. We saw it in Titus. And here it is in 1 Peter. Why is it, do you think, that every time they're talking about leadership and elders, Peter and Paul, both of them, in separate cities, separate countries, separate years, say, not for sordid gain. What do you think it is about leadership that causes them to have to say, not for sordid gain, not for unholy, dirty gain. Don't be a leader so that you can get something out of it. Now, we, we can, you know, sordid gain has the primary focus of being wealth, money. But as I thought about that, I thought, you know, being a leader in a church or an organization can have more gain than just money. It can be the prestige. It can be the position. It can be the authority you have over other people's lives. There can be a lot of sordid things that you can gain out of a leadership position, and you should not become a leader, and you should not be in leadership for those things. Jesus talks about the, the Pharisees who like to sit in the chief seats. They like to have people call them special titles. Now, it's one thing if you happen to be placed in a special seat, and it's, it's one thing if people happen to call you by top, but if you're doing it for that purpose, that's not good. And that's what he's getting at. Not for sordid gain, but what's the, the opposite? But with eagerness. And this word eagerness has the idea of, of before and pleasure. And, and so it, it, it's, it's that they are going forward with pleasure. Doing it not for what they can gain, but rather for what they can give with eagerness. It's a pleasure just to serve. Right? I guess that's what, is that Chick-fil-A, you know, where everything's a pleasure? It's their pleasure, you know? There's something right about that. Not for what they can get, but for what they can give. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. This is what Jesus talks about when he says that the the, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over those under them. The idea of lorded over has the idea of that you bend them down. Lorded over them. Bend them down by putting stuff on them or, 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 or pushing them below you so that you're raised up. Not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So, so instead, of, instead of lording it over, which, which can be, you need to do this, you need to do that, instead, proving to be examples to the flock. And, and so the idea there is, instead of forcing somebody to do it, doing it for them and letting them see you do it and having them follow you in that. 
So these are contrasts, not according to sort of gain, but with what you can give instead, and not lording it over them, but instead proving to be an example. And he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. So, so do this with the hope and the look to the future. That when the chief shepherd, we're, anybody who serves, they're, they're not the top dog. There's always one above. And when he shows up, if you do it right, if you live the way you're supposed to, if you serve the way you're supposed to, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, regardless of, of whether or not you're in a position of leadership, or if it's just in how you live, you know, in your service somewhere, the, the thing here is, is we can do all sorts of things for sordid gain, can't we? Uh, sometime, we, were, we were just talking about this recently within the last mayoral election. There was one candidate that was running, and I was talking to somebody about this candidate, and they said, oh yeah, that candidate, they don't take a hard stance on anything. They don't want to have anything that will hurt them later down the road. So they, they're not going to have a hard stance one way or another on lockdowns or masks because they're more concerned about getting to the next position. And they don't want something that they did while they were down here to keep them from getting that next position. I was very happy that person did not win. Who wants a leader who's just focused on what keeps me looking clean so that I can get to the next job? That's sordid gain. You know, if you're serving someplace and the only reason why you're serving in that place within the church is because you're thinking about the next place you can go to, that's sordid gain. You're not serving willingly and for the, for the eagerness in that moment. You're thinking about the next thing. The main thing here that I think is interesting is this idea about proving to be examples to the flock. Not lording it over, not telling people what to do, but instead through how we live our lives to show ourselves to be an example in, in life to the flock. And I think that, that's something that can be true, not just for leaders, but for all people, that we should live so as to set an example for others to follow. And that, that, that's in so many different ways. How do we, a big one is how do we respond to those in leadership? If you're not in leadership position, how do you respond to them? How do you, how do you react to them? How do you live with them? You know, are you constantly looking for what they're doing wrong, or do you see what you can do to help? Depending on how we operate as an assistant, do we help the ones that are put in those positions? Maybe we prove ourselves to be faithful, and when that position becomes available, then we move into it. Because we've proven ourselves an example to others. I've had that within the church in ministry areas where there's, there's somebody already in a position and somebody else wants that position. And all they can do is think about how they could do it better and say, wait a minute, how about you do everything you can to help them do it better? And if you prove faithful when they're not doing it anymore because nobody will ever continue to do everything in the church, someday they are going to give it up, you'll be the natural choice if we prove ourselves to be an example and, and to live as an example for others to follow. And I think this is, this is important for leaders, that, that every aspect of a leader's life should be something that other people, whether, whether they can see it or not, 
You know, we don't go advertising how much everybody gives, but if you're in a position of leadership, your giving lifestyle should be something that if somebody knew about it, you could say, yes, that's a good example to follow. It should be. I, I think back into the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 7, where the, the leaders of all different tribes, they brought their gifts to Moses. And God told him, hey, let them do it. Accept it. And so every day, different leaders would bring their gifts, and they were recorded in Scripture as an example for the people of Israel around them. Now, I'm not saying we need to go and post. I mean, it's about your conscience. But I do know that as a child, watching my dad take a check and fold it over and put it in the offering plate, and sometimes being allowed, I remember what a joy it was just to be able to be given the check and to hold the check and then to get to be the one that put the check in the offering plate. What a great thing to do. But an example was set so that even when I was a non-believer on my own and I went to church even though I was not following Jesus and I did not have the Holy Spirit in me, you know, I still gave my money my tithe, because I had the example. And I thought I was a believer. And I was doing those things because the example set before me. And so we should all, not just those who are in leadership positions, but all of us should live so as to set an example for others to follow. What kind of language do we use? How do we treat other people? How do we treat the people who are helping us? How do we treat the people we're helping and not so much an example of, oh, well, you need to behave this way. or You know, it's like, it's like me saying, oh, well, I have to have this specific Bible because the pastor, when I became a believer, he used this Bible, so this is the only Bible to use. That's not the example I want to set, but I do want to set the example of using the Bible. Which Bible works for you? Use it. That's what matters, not, oh, it has to be this one. A life of faith is the thing we should be setting an example of. How do, we, how do we trust God with our lives and with our situations and our families and our jobs? Not setting an example of, sometimes we can set an example of legalism. We don't want to do that. Of you got to behave this way, you got to do this because you're in church, but when you're out of church, you can do these other things. No. Let's, let's all of us set an example for others to follow. And as we do that, those that, that set a good example will probably be called upon to continue to set an example through leading and guiding the church. Now, how do we respond to it? He does talk about, you know, it's not just the leadership stuff, although we've been able to apply that to our lives as well. In verse 5, we're going to finish out this portion by he, he turns to the, you younger men. Now, he's talking to elders, and, and that's a term, a title of those that lead, but also you know, we have elders among us. They're the older people in the church that have gone the walked down the path of Christ. They have journeyed long with him and we can learn from them and we can listen to them and we can find out, that get a little bit of perspective. And I, I'm learning every year just how much more perspective the years give you. You know, that, that the things that you're so worried about, oh, this week is going to be terrible. This week everything fell apart. You know, give it a couple of years. The week's not so bad. Life gives us perspective. And so to younger men, likewise, he's talking about to you younger men, the, the people who aren't elders, but, and it's not just men. I think you could apply this to women as well. Be subject to your elders. And all of you 
Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yeah, I, I think there's something that went really wrong in our church culture back in the 60s and 70s. It was influenced probably by the culture around us, but the church stopped respecting its elders. The church stopped submitting, subjecting itself to its elders. Instead, the church adopted an attitude of, get out of the way. It's our turn now. We don't want to sing your music. We want to sing our music. Get out of the way. And now it's happening again. Now you got the, hey, boomer type stuff going on, you know? And it's just going to keep going on. It's just going to keep going on because we decided to stop subjecting ourselves to our elders, stop submitting ourselves. That's what subject yourself to means, is to submit yourself under them. It literally put yourself under. Now, you can be subjected where somebody puts you under them. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about that we, as the members of the church, should willingly submit to our elders. Now, in this context, he's talking about the leaders of the church, to, to submit yourself, to be subje- subject to them. But it ha- I think it, it can apply even to our heart attitude and our thoughts about those who are older. As a church, when you got young people and they want to run faster than they can, they want to run before they can walk, right? And we want to change things and we want to do things. And it grates on you to have the elders say, no, slow down. You're not ready for that. Unfortunately, sometimes the elders can be doing it for sordid reasons. They can be, we just don't want to listen to you. We just want things our way. We're happy. That's not healthy. But better to submit yourself to the unhealthy elders than to be unhealthy yourself. And so he's saying, submit yourself to your elders. And what is the, what is the basis for this? All of you, not just the young people, not just the elders, but all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Humility is, is, is not you put yourself down all the time. It's that you don't put yourself up all the time. That you accept who you are and where you are, and you consider others as being more important than yourself. That I don't need to have my way. No, I need to see if I can help them have their way, if I can. That we would all clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. And he gives us a very good reason. For God is opposed to the proud. He is against the proud. Why not? Because the proud are against him. The proud people are opposed to God. And he's opposed to them, but he gives grace to the humble. So, so as we come together as a church, and I think one of the things that we have failed at as a church, not just here, but in the country of America, is a lack of humility towards one another and a lack of willingness to submit ourselves to our elders and submit ourselves to one another. That instead, we're forcing our way. We want our way. And we create chaos and struggle. And, and sometimes, like I said, sometimes... You know, submitting yourself to the elders. The elders can be wrong. How do you submit yourself to people who are wrong? How do you submit yourself to people who, and not wrong and sinful, just wrong? You know, you, you can be honestly, righteously wrong about something. 
You can say, that's not the right path to go. This is the better path to go. And you can be wrong. And it has nothing to do with sin. It could be in the best desires of your heart. And maybe if you're a person who has better vision or better discernment and you see that and they won't listen to you, it can be hard to submit yourself to them. And we can think, no, we got to fix that. we got to change that. But God is saying, no, I'll give you grace. Humble yourself. Accept. You think God can't help a church that decides to go the wrong direction for a while? He can help if we'll submit, if we'll humble, humble ourselves. And, and so overwhelmingly, I think that the, the thing that we have failed, and, and I've struggled with it myself, sometimes we've submitted and humbled ourselves, sometimes it's a fight in the church, and I'm, I'm certain that the fights have never been healthy for us. But whether you're in leadership or not, each of us can submit to one another in humility. And what he calls us to do is to submit to one another in humility. And really, I mean, to a certain extent, isn't that what a shepherd does when he goes out to take care of the fleet, the, 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 the flock, the sheep? He submits to them. He finds good grass for them. It's not about his comfort. It's about their comfort. It's not about his needs. It's about their needs. He submits to them in a certain way. And when he guides them in a direction, they submit to him and go with him. Everything is about this Submission. But we, we, we get so narrow-focused. We, we get blinders on that, that, no, this is the most important thing. If we don't do this, everything is done with. Oh, we're sunk if we don't do this. And we get so focused and so blinded that we forget what he has said. Everything in 1 Peter, from the very beginning chapter throughout, 1 Peter puts two things together, and he does it in, in this book as well. In, in verse 1, I'm going to go back a little bit. Remember he said he exhorted them as their fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. The suffering of Christ and the glory that is to be revealed. Throughout First Peter, he puts suffering and glory together. Suffering and glory. And then in verse 4, when he talks about how we should serve and, and, and looking to the future, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The focus is on the glory. Now throughout 1 Peter, whenever he's talking about suffering and glory, the thing that unites them is salvation. As we as a church experience suffering in this earth, Peter says, but we're looking forward to the glory. The hope of our salvation that we will receive the glory. When he talks about Jesus' suffering and Jesus' glory, what's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that he went to the cross and died for our sins and that he rose again to glory and he is returning someday in glory. He's talking about salvation, the hope we have that our lives will be saved and that Jesus will return and we will be with Him for eternity. Everything as He's talking about as the church serves together, as we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to one another, as we strive to be an example to each other, it's all within the context of salvation. 
and what he's encouraging us and telling us to do, and the reason why we should be able to humble ourselves in one another and subject ourselves to one another, and the reason why we fail is so often we lose sight. We blind ourselves to the greater context. We think only in finite terms, as in how are we going to make budget, or how are we going to make you know get more people in seats, or how are we going to do this, how are we going to do that? And that's when we start lording it over people. That's when we start doing things by compulsion, not willingly. But if we would step back and remember that this is all about the salvation that He's given us, that this stuff that we're doing, it has no value except in that Jesus is coming back again. It has no value except in the sense that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And when we live within that context, when we live and serve in the context of salvation then we can humble ourselves to one another. Then we can submit ourselves to each other. But we've got to live and serve in the context of salvation. And that's what, that's what Peter is talking about here as he's going through this, that how do, we, how do you submit yourself even if they're making a wrong decision? And I'm speaking from personal, personal experience on this one. What if a church united decides we're not going to? The right response, not we're not going to because of sin, although there might have been some of that, but just this isn't the path we want to go, we want to go down that path. Well, in the context of salvation, the context of the coming glory, it, it, it doesn't matter. Submit. But if the context is in well, I've got to figure out how to keep this place going. Well, I've got to figure out how to do this. Well, I've got to figure out how to do that. All of a sudden, we're not submitting, are we? Because our focus isn't on what God has done. It's on what we have to do or what we think we need to do. So how do we serve even if we think we should be doing something different? How do we submit even if we think we could do that better than that person? We do it if we live and we serve in the context of salvation. That ultimately, these little things don't matter so much that what really matters is making sure people know who Jesus is. That we guide them in His ways. And we submit to one another for His sake. That, that's how this comes together in life. At least that's the way it should if we're going to be God-honoring at it. Because what matters most isn't our little earthly kingdoms, our little earthly agendas, what matters most is the salvation that God has given us through Jesus Christ. And that should always be foremost in our mind and in our focus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we, we come before You and we recognize the truth, Lord. I ask for Your forgiveness for the times that it is hard to... to to live out Your truth, that we, we think we have to solve it. We have to fix it. We have to make it work. And we don't rest in You. And we don't submit to one another. and We lack humility to get along. Father, we pray today that You would help us as a body 
as individual members of Christ, but also as a body come together to be your assembly of believers. We pray, Lord, that we would be humble in our views of ourselves, that we would submit ourselves to one another, that we would look for how we can serve you and serve the church willingly without uh, just because we desire something, but what would actually help, what would actually be good. And help us to rest in that and to rest in you, to trust that you will guide us, that your Holy Spirit can, can help those that are put in leadership positions and that we can submit to them, Lord, and we can trust you in it. We thank you, Father, for your salvation that you have given us. And we pray above all things that as Christ suffered on the cross and died for us, that we could experience the sufferings of this world, Lord, and live for him. With our eyes and our focus on the glory to come, in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.